Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How are we doing, church, at the 9 a.m. in the house and online? Are we good today? All right, that was better than the 9 a.m. two weeks ago. You guys were rough, so I'm feeling hopeful about this crowd. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad you are with us, whether you're just checking out the church thing, you haven't liked the church thing, somebody uh, kind of baited you into coming today or watching online, or you know, you've been a part of this for a while. This is the perfect series, honestly, if you're just joining us. So I'm going to dive right in. I'm going to tell you what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. And here's the Here's a warning up front. This is very different than any other series that I've done. So my hope is that you're going to track through all the way these four weeks. And, and specifically, if you can be in-house and in-person, I think there's a huge benefit to that. Um, but it's going to be very different because every week, um, that week is going to build on the previous week, unlike any other series that I've done. So if you miss one, you kind of miss an episode that's really, really important to the whole story. But I want to talk for four weeks um, about unbelievable grown-up questions about the Bible. And here's who this series is for. This series is for adults who are introduced to the Bible as children. And then the series is also for adults who are introduced to the Bible as adults by adults who are introduced to the Bible as children. Did you get that? Because here's the thing for a lot, you will in a minute. Here's the thing for a lot of us is we know stories from the Bible. I mean, even if you didn't grow up in like Bible Belt, you don't have any church background, like you know some of them, even if you get all the names mixed up and there's two Josephs in the Bible, what? Like what, but you know some of the stories in the Bible, but many of us, most of us, I would say, don't know the story of the Bible. And what I wanna do for four weeks, and this is something I've never done in my years of preaching, I wanna give you the story of the Bible, how we got what we got, why I think it's legit, why you don't have to be intellectually dishonest and follow Jesus. And so that's kind of what I want to track with for the next couple of weeks. And, and here's what you have to understand. How we got the Bible is almost as important as what is in the Bible. Because the backstory sheds incredible light and gives incredible context to the story. And if you don't know the story, it, it, things can get like really off the rails really, really quick. And here's what I would say. What I'm going to talk about is not that important as a kid. You're not even going to get most of it. But as an adult with adult questions that no longer hold up to maybe some of your Sunday school answers, it is unbelievably important. Because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it is so easy to discount stories in the Bible. And for some of you, maybe many of you, just because the demographic of our church, we reach so many who are skeptic and are questioning, which I absolutely love. That's where you are right now. So here's the problem though, and here's the dynamic or tension that I want to unearth, is that there, how you got your Bible, if you have one, or like I have one somewhere, it's dusty, it's on a show, I need to find it, or you've got one on your phone. But if you have a Bible, which is like most of us, the story of how you got your Bible is very different than how we got the Bible. Now, I don't know if this is your story or not, 
Um, some of you relate with it. This is the first Bible that I ever got. Um, this is, yeah, oh, this is Vacation Bible School. I'm five years old. Um, they gave me this for some reason. And so I got this at Vacation Bible School. And like many of you, it came saran wrapped. And it was prepackaged, and you know, of course, it's bound, and all the chapters and verses are in it, and it's really a library. There's 66 different documents or books inside of this. But I was handed a Bible like many of you were early on, and maybe your Bible looks similar to this. I have no idea what these pages look like um, a few years ago. This has obviously been chewed on by a dog or several dogs. Um, I've taken good care of it. So I got this Bible at five, and it was handed to me, and maybe you relate with this. It was handed to me, and somebody said, this is God's word and all of it's true and you should obey it and you should believe it before you ever read it. And I'm like, okay, done. And for many of you, that's your story. Here, here's the Bible. It's God's word. It's hundred percent true. Obey it, believe it. You've never read it. That's just the dynamic. Now, others of you, your story is very different because maybe you grew up in a tradition where you weren't encouraged to read it and you had a priest and they interpreted the scripture for you and they told you what it said or they read it for you. And really there was no encouragement whatsoever to ever read your Bible. Many of you grew up in that kind of tradition. But here's what I want you to understand is that regardless of which side you are on, like was handed it and was just supposed to believe it or was really never encouraged to read it, most of us carry our childhood understandings of the Bible into adulthood. And in fact, we interact with it based on what we were told. Like this will like clue you into why there can be so many movements, so many things done in the name of Jesus, ripping out a Bible verse that has nothing to do with Jesus. I'm pretty much sure Jesus would like throw up in his mouth. Like that is not what is in the scripture. That's not what I taught. And the reason for that is because we live in a culture, and this is not to be harsh, that is theologically illiterate. And so we build theological platforms and political parties and rip verses having no idea what is actually in the Bible because we interact with it based on what we were told. Now, here's where I know some of us are at because some of you grew up and you're like, yeah, I understand your story and that's great for me. Like I, uh, I, the Bible says it, that settles it. I believe it and that's awesome. But for others of you, that's not your story. Because somewhere past like Sunday school faith, somebody pointed out what else was in the Bible that you never read. And at that point, like you couldn't look away. So you were really tempted to walk away or maybe right now you're tempted to walk away. And what I wanna say to both groups, whether you're in the, well, I just believe it. I just have faith. God said it, that settles it. Or no, 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 there's a bunch of stuff in here. I don't understand. Is this really legit? How is this reliable? So many different people read it. I got a lot of questions. Genesis one, like, no, it's not that easy for me. Both groups, this series is incredibly important for you. Whether you're a 30 year follower of Jesus and you just believe it, but you don't really know how you got it. Or the person's like, no, I've got some real heavy questions. I don't know if I can continue to follow Jesus. I don't know if this is true. I don't know if this is legit. This series is important. This series is for you. So here's where I wanna catch you up. And again, I wanna kind of take you on a journey for four weeks that again will be very different. But here's where really the story of the Bible picks up. It does not start in the beginning. It actually starts in the middle. And it starts with this guy that was highly educated. He was a doctor. His name was Luke. 
And Luke is really where the Bible, as you know it, begins. Luke sits down to write and to document an orderly account of all of the events that happened during the life of Jesus. Basically, he got to know a guy, a very wealthy businessman by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus um, interviewed or basically talked to a lot of eyewitnesses. He heard the stories and Theophilus got to the place in the first century to believe that Jesus really was who he said he was and placed his faith and trust in Jesus. And then Theophilus, this rich businessman, wanted an orderly account of all of the stories, all of the events, everything that Jesus did, believing that Jesus really was the promised Messiah and something had happened in history. And so Luke sits down to interview eyewitnesses and to write an orderly account of everything that had happened. And here's how he starts. Now, here's what, this is how he starts, not his gospel, Like when Luke writes this, there was no gospel talk. Nobody thought about a gospel. Luke didn't know he was writing the Bible. Nobody knew what the Bible was. Luke was just writing a document after interviewing eyewitnesses in the first century about what had happened. And here's what Luke says at Luke chapter one, verse one. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And basically what Luke is saying is something, and this is so important, something happened that is worth documenting. Something took place in history that is now worthy of me recording it and writing it down. And previous to this, it really wasn't worth it. Now, here's what's really, really interesting is that word many, because what many of you might know is that in the first century, there aren't many eyewitnesses, witness accounts or multiple accounts of any event. It was incredibly expensive, incredibly time-consuming. Nobody could read for the most part. So to have multiple accounts of any event was unbelievably outside of the norm. And so this is extraordinary right from the beginning where Luke's going, there's a lot of copies of this. A lot of people sat down to write about this, which just doesn't happen in first century culture. And then he says this, verse three, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, this wealthy landowner. And as Luke is writing, here's what you have to understand. I want to emphasize it one more time. Luke is not going, I'm going to write the Bible. Luke is not thinking the Bible. Luke has no context for uh, the Bible. Luke is not thinking anything. Luke is writing a document, incredibly expensive, incredibly time-consuming, to record the events in an orderly fashion of what happened through Jesus. Basically, Luke is creating this account that tells us why and how the story of the Bible began. And here's where the story of the Bible really began. It began the moment that Jesus followers realized that Jesus was not who Jesus claimed to be. Because Jesus over and over again throughout his life is like, I am the resurrection and the life. You're looking at him. I am the way and the truth and the life. I'm not asking you to follow some way. I'm not asking you to follow some truth. I'm telling you, I am the way, I am the truth. I'm not asking you to believe in some resurrection. I'm telling you, I am the resurrection. I'm telling you that I am the source of life. And then the resurrection and life died. 
the way, the truth, and the life died. Here's what you have to understand about Jesus. Unlike any other religion, and this is what secular historians who do not any longer, if they're credible, doubt the fact that Jesus lived. They don't doubt the fact, obviously, that Jesus died. What they can't figure out is how Jesus and the Jesus movement survived the first century. Because unlike any other religion, there were no teachings to take forward. Because Jesus positioned himself as the teachings. Jesus positioned himself as the movement. Other religions, the guy dies who's like in charge of the thing. And now you've got teachings to take forward to go, hey, follow this prophet, follow this whoever. That's not the case with Jesus. You can't do that when you position yourself at the center to say, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Now I'm dead. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the bread of life. I'm dead. And so when Jesus died, I just need you to understand this, the movement and the message died with Jesus. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who's basically a part of the Supreme Court, they asked permission for Jesus' body, not because they believed anything was gonna happen, but because they respected Jesus, but like everybody else, their hearts were broken and ripped out because they believed that Jesus was just another be, another wannabe Messiah. And so they asked permission to go get Jesus' body to properly embalm it out of respect. And Luke, who's making an orderly account of the events, says this in Luke 23, 53, then talking about Joseph of Arimathea, took it down the body, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one which no one had yet been laid. And then verse 55, the women or disciples who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw that the tomb and how bad, saw the tomb and how badly um, and how his body was laid in it. And then verse 56, and then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. And they did this because that's what you do to dead people in that culture. Jesus was dead. Jesus was not coming back from the dead. Jesus was in a tomb. Life was out of his body, ultimately for several days. And everybody was devastated. Everybody was disillusioned. Everybody was afraid because here's what they thought in the moment. The Roman gods have won. The, the corrupt temple system has won and it is all over. There are no Christians. There are no followers of Jesus. There is no movement. There is no message. There is nothing to take forward. All of it is over. And they walked to a tomb in order to embalm the body of their wannabe Messiah and all of their hope was lost. And if it had ended there, and here's what you need to know. If it had ended in that moment, there would be no Bible and there would be no church and there would be no Old Testament and there would be no written account from Luke and there would be no written account from anybody else. And the only reason that there is is because something happened in history and the Roman cross was not the end of the story. And after Easter weekend, after Jesus was placed in a tomb, they saw Jesus, one group, 500 at one time. They had breakfast with him on the beach and they realized that their Lord and their savior was resurrected from the grave and all of these cowards, Peter, Andrew, James, John, all of them who were hiding and cowering and denying that they even knew Jesus, they flooded the streets of Jerusalem among the very people that had killed Jesus and ultimately crucified Jesus. And they began to preach in the streets. These cowards became bold preachers and began in the very faces of the people who crucified Jesus to say, hey, listen, you guys were wrong. 
I know that we were cowering. We were hiding in upper room apartments. All of us left. There were no followers Easter weekend, but I'm telling you, we have seen Jesus alive. And you guys crucified the author of life. You need to repent. Jesus is exactly who Jesus said he was. And I've said this before, but how do cowards turn into fearless, bold proclaimers? Not of what they believed, of what they saw. People die for what they believe all over the world every day. People do not generally die for what they say they saw. And for them, it was a resurrected Jesus. And I've said before, when your leader comes back from the dead and then you eat with him, there is nothing to fear any longer. And so they roll into the streets of Jerusalem and they began to proclaim something has happened that has changed everything. And Luke, who's documenting this orderly account, who's putting all of the events together. Here's one piece of one message that Peter preaches. Peter, who was denying Jesus, acting like he didn't even know him, suddenly is not even afraid for his life as he rolls into the streets of Jerusalem to go, no, no, you guys were wrong. And Jesus is alive. He said this in Acts 2.32, Luke recorded it. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses. That's such a key word of it. This is not about what we believe. This is about what we saw. It's the only thing that could turn Peter from a coward to a fearless proclaimer of the truth among Roman and Pharisaical authorities. And in that moment, you just need to know this, the church movement began. What we know as Christianity began. The Jesus movement began, but still there was no Bible. Nobody had the Bible. Luke goes on to record the 30 year history of the church after the resurrection, which is the book of Acts in the Bible. And during that time he interacts with Peter and he interacts with John. He goes on a missionary journey with Paul and, and Luke documents the rise of the Gentile church, this movement that would ultimately shape all of Western culture. But it's interesting that Luke writes all of this, this 30-year this history of what happened about the, after the resurrection. But Luke is not the only one that documents and writes about this. Because here's what he said that we looked at earlier, Luke 1.1. You guys still with me? He said this, many, like a whole lot of people have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, real quick, let me just pause for a second. If you're skeptical, and I I totally get it, and if you're trying to figure this thing out, and I I hope I answer some of your questions over the next four weeks, but I, I get why you would be skeptical. But here's the question you have to answer. Why would so many people, why would so many people record and document these events? And this is something you can study for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it. More than any other known event during that time period, there's nothing that parallels the documentation of what happened during the life of Jesus. Why would so many do that when most people couldn't even read? When it was unbelievably expensive and in some cases would have been unbelievably dangerous. And the answer to that question is that every single one of those followers who believed the Jesus movement was over suddenly believed that something extraordinary happened in history. And Peter and the boys weren't getting any younger. 
And there is now the threat of their life. And they believed with all of their heart, even if it meant their death, that they had to preserve this for future generations and get it into the hands of other people so that it would survive the first century. Like you have to ask the question, why would so many people write this down when it did not benefit them? They did not get a book deal out of it. They got no royalties from the Bible. There was again, no Bible. There was just documents of what happened during the life of Jesus. One of those guys was Peter and he transcribed the events that he saw and was a part of to a guy by the name of Mark, who was another Greek. And we know this because of Papias, who was a early second century writer. But you look at Mark's writing, who was dictating what Peter said about these events and Mark was a fisherman. So you look at the book of Mark, it is incredibly short. It's incredibly to the point. It's incredibly event driven, which is exactly what you would expect because of who Mark was, because of his profession. And Mark was a guy that was well-known. Mark knew a lot of the guys. He traveled with Paul. Mark knew Peter very, very intimately. He wrote his account in around the AD 50s. And then Matthew comes along. And Matthew's a guy who, as a Jewish guy, specifically wrote to Jewish people. And the, the whole account that Matthew writes is, hey, Jewish people, you need to know that Jesus is the promised Messiah. All the prophets that wrote about, there's someone who's coming that's gonna do something for the world. All the prophets that wrote about the fact that there was a Messiah who's gonna touch down on planet earth. Everything that we've waited for as Jewish people for hundreds of years, Matthew would write, Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus is here. Our long awaited Messiah has touched down on planet earth. And Matthew, one of the early church fathers talk about the fact that there's an early writing of of Matthew in Hebrew, which is what you would expect, it didn't survive. But eventually it was translated into Greek in around the the 50s, AD 50s, which was incredibly significant that it was translated into Greek for this reason, because Jesus was introducing a brand new movement to the world that was unlike any other genealogical or patriarchal movement. It was now an indication because Greek was the language of the Eastern empire that this would be a movement, this would be a gospel, this would be something for all the nations. Not Roman people, not just Jewish people, not just Gentile people, not just Samaritan people, not just men, not just women, not one particular nation, not one particular genealogy, not one particular race. This would be a multicultural, multiracial movement for the entire world where everybody stood on an equal plane and they had access to God through Christ. And Matthew sits down to record it because he knows I cannot let this be lost for future generations. They have to know. And then John comes along. And at this point, John, you're like, John, why bother, bro? Like, why? Like, everybody's already written about this. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of documents floating around. Like, do we really need you to dictate another account of what happened through the life of Jesus? Like, seriously. And yet John sits down to dictate this. At the end of his account, he tells us why he dictated yet another account of the life of Jesus. And he said this in John 20, verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And he, again, he is not referring to the Bible. He doesn't know that there's gonna be a, the Bible. He's just talking about 
his document, John's document, writing about what happened, the events that John was actually there for in the first century. And he says, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, this document, but these are written. And John would say, listen, as I face the end of my life, and by the way, at this point, he's exiled on an island in Patmos. He's willing to give up everything. And as he's writing this, he's going, I'm still clinging to faith in Jesus. And I was there when Jesus died, but I was also there when Jesus came back from the dead. And I'm clinging to faith in Jesus, not because of my current circumstances. I've been exiled to an island for my golden years and I'm gonna die here. I'm clinging to faith in Jesus because, what I, because of what I saw. Something extraordinary has happened and the world has got to know and I'll die for it. Yeah. And John says, but these are written that you, and he's talking about you and you and you and you and us, you. John's like, so that you, like whoever stumbles across this document, not the Bible, they had no idea what they were writing. This was simply, we have to document what happened. And John's like, I, you just need to know, this changed my life. Jesus changed my life. I have been a witness to extraordinary events that I have to dictate so that you would know. But these are written that you may believe. And at this point, you're like, okay, believe what? Like, John, what do you want us to believe? And can I just pause for a second? Because this is the question for you. If you're still grappling with some of this, you got questions. Because some of you would say, like, I walked away because I just didn't believe it. And I completely get that. But what's the it that you didn't believe? Because you have to define the it. And basically in his writings, John's going, not the Bible. There is no the Bible. I just want to say that again. The John documenting what he saw. John in his document is about to tell you the only it that actually matters. And here's what he says, finish out verse 31. But these, all these accounts, all these stories, all the activity that's happened, all these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jews, the son of God to Greeks and Romans. And I love this. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Listen, Regardless of anything else, your bad church experience, the fact that you got turned away from the church because there was this unspoken, get your crap together and come and your crap wasn't together, whether it was a divorced parent, whether it was questions about the Bible, whether it was Christian nationalism, whether it was hypocrisy, whether it was, am I really invited into this? Whatever your story is, whatever your questions, whatever your pushback, whatever your barriers, John's going, this is the it. This is the only it that matters. And I'm telling you, the implications are absolutely extraordinary. Because if John's account is the only thing that you ever have, John's account's the only thing that you need. If John's account, just listen to me for a second, if, if everything else got lost and John's account is the only thing that you ever listen to, it is the only thing that you ever need because John accounts for the fact that God has done something extraordinary in the world on your behalf. John writes the famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
And whoever believes in, whoever trusts in this Jesus that I was face to face with after a Roman crucifixion, whoever believes in and trusts in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That is the only it that matters. And if John's account is the only thing that you ever hear, John's account is the only thing that you need. It's why for decades and decades and decades and decades, people have been directing other individuals not to the Bible. Over and over again, they've directed them to John's account. And people have picked it up as atheists and skeptics with every barrier that you can imagine. And they've set it down, believing that Jesus really is the Christ, the son of the living God. And John's going, that's why I dictated this. And people have read it and they have believed it. Listen to me, 270 years before there was ever the Bible. Thousands and thousands placing their faith and their trust in Christ. So as I get ready to land this plane and then leave you hanging, which I'll do every week. You arrive at the end of the first century and there's thousands, just thousands of Jesus followers. And there's no Bible. There are thousands of documents of the life and the events of what Jesus did and the words of Jesus. And and just think about this for a second, just in your imagination. Imagine how valuable these documents were for people still living who had heard all the stories. Imagine how valuable these documents were for people who had heard their parents talk about hearing Peter and John speak. Imagine how valuable that was. This example, like this falls woefully short, but it's the best example that I could give. But growing up, I never got to meet my grandfather on my dad's side. So I never got to meet my dad's dad. He got cancer uh, when my dad was around 12 years old and he battled cancer for about nine years. After my dad had his first kid, uh, he's about 21 years old, his dad finally passed away. And so I, my whole life, I grew up hearing stories about my grandfather. And, and my dad, to give you some context, is the man that I admire most. The man in my life that has been most faithful, has impacted my life more than anybody else, who has shaped everything about me. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing is because God using him in my life. So when I was growing up, I would hear stories about his dad. And I would hear stories about his incredible faithfulness and the anecdotes of he was a farmer in Pennsylvania that was incredibly a hard worker. And he would work even during those years where he's battling cancer. He was unbelievably faithful and gracious and raising their family and loving his wife, my grandmother, so incredibly well. And just little anecdotes of him being in their little Presbyterian church. My dad would always talk about this. And just, I mean, he was not a big dude, but he would just um, like sing at the top of his lungs in this little building that reverberated off the wood pews, you know, as they're singing hymns. But just all of these stories about him, and I never got to meet him, but I was so impacted by his life because of how his life had impacted kind of this multi-generational thing in my family and how he had impacted my dad and how my, my dad had impacted me in such an extraordinary way. And I'll never forget when my grandmother finally passed, we got to go through a bunch of stuff and there's these bins of pictures and you know, all this stuff, like really valuable stuff and then crap and just everything that you got to go through. And I, I remember finding what was like, a, there wasn't even much to it, but this, this letter of his writing, I'd never even seen his writing before. There was honestly very few even pictures of him. And, and I remember finding this little letter that he had written and just almost being in all of it, 
And it pales in comparison, but this man who had impacted my dad's life in such a significant way and had so shaped our family and, and again, by default, had so impacted and shaped my life in such an extraordinary way. It, this is an overshot, but it, it almost felt sacred to me. It was such an unbelievably big deal to me. Now imagine, rewind, from the very beginning, these documents, these accounts were considered, and you just need to know this, valuable and reliable. 300 years before there was uh, the Bible, these documents from the beginning were considered sacred and inspired. And eventually, these documents, these accounts, these dictations, these writings were embraced as scripture. But still, as I get ready to end it, no Bible. No Bible for 250 years. And now at this point, the empire is suspicious of all the Christians. And they're not suspicious of Christians because so much of what Christians believe, they're suspicious of what Christians don't believe. Because their, their context of relating to God was different than any other world religion. In fact, from history, we know that Romans would talk to the Christians or at that point, the followers of the way, and they would basically call them atheists because they would ask about their religion. They'd be like, where's your temple? And they're like, uh, we don't have a temple. Because it's hard to, under, like, to describe, but Jesus now was like, he, he came and the Holy Spirit indwells us. So we don't need a temple. We're like portable temples. We don't actually have to go anywhere. Like God's just with us. And like, that's weird. Okay, well, where's your sacrifice? Oh, okay, again, that's hard to, we don't have any sacrifices because Jesus was like the final sacrifice and there's no more sacrifice for sin. Now we have relationship with him and his love and his grace and nothing can ever undo that because he was the final sacrifice one time for all time. And they're like, what? Okay, so where's your priest? Okay, again, we don't have a priest because Jesus is like the final high priest. So we don't really need a go between. I know this is crazy. We can just talk to God directly anywhere we want, even in our little huts over here. We don't even have to go to a temple. We have a great high priest. We are the temple. We don't need any more sacrifice. Jesus has done it all. And the atheists or the Romans would look at the Christians and go, so you guys are atheists? Like, no, we follow Jesus, but they had no context for it. And they had no context for this. And this is what got Christians in trouble with authorities that were in power. Christians did not believe in the gods. Christians believed in the God. And that was very uncomfortable in Roman and Greek culture because you didn't do that. And the other thing that was really uncomfortable is Caesar was not their Lord. And so the gods were ticked off and Caesar was ticked off and suddenly there's this really uncomfortable tension with the Christians in first century culture. And in fact, Tertullian, who was a brilliant second and third century Christian author wrote this about that tension. He said, if the Tiber floods the city or if the Nile refuses to rise or if the sky withholds its rain, if there is an earthquake, a famine, a pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lions. For this reason, the whole point of religion was keep the gods happy at all times in every way. And the gods, little g, showed their pleasure or their displeasure through nature. And so in AD 303, Diocletian issued an edict of the worst state-sponsored persecution of Christians to date. And in that moment, they destroyed all the places of worship. 
They forbid anybody to gather or assemble together. And he made it illegal to have any Christian literature or documentation. And so all of these, or many of these documents were hidden and buried, but people would hide them or bury them and ultimately give up their lives rather than give them over. And there's one reason they did this, because they believed that God had done something through the person of Christ on planet earth that had changed everything. And it wasn't about what they believed. People believe stuff all the time. It was about what they saw, a resurrected Jesus. And they would rather give up their lives than give up those documents for future generations that told of the extraordinary events of what Jesus had done. And under that persecution, the church exploded. And I just want you to know this, the church, this is a side note, is always at its best when it's at the bottom of society. The church is always at its best when it has no power. The church is always at its best when it has no political platform. The church is always at its best when it has no power to leverage. And the persecuted church under the edict of Diocletian with these documents that were trying to be destroyed, the church flourished. It began to change the world. And there was no the Bible. Then political winds changed and it eased tensions and it began to change things in the empire. And finally in AD 324, Constantine became the undisputed emperor of the empire. And at that point, he basically did away with the edict. And at that point, he returned property, which was just unheard of. And at that point, he made it legal for Christian documentation. And in fact, Christianity became the preferred religion of the empire. Now listen, this is so crazy. And for the first time in history, Christian writers could document in the open They weren't afraid of their life. They didn't have to hide by candlelight. They didn't have to smuggle documents. For the first time, they could copy these extraordinary, valuable documents of what had happened out in the open. And it set the stage for the assembly of the first ever Ta Biblia, 300 years after Jesus was even walking the earth and what we would eventually call the Bible. And there is so much more to that story that I'll talk about next week. So would you stand with me wherever you're at? If you could join me online right now, and I'm gonna end every message in this series. And so if you could just kind of be in this moment and be where you are as much as possible, that would be extraordinary. And I know it may not mean much to you, but when we gather in person, something happens and This sounds weird and ethereal, but the spirit of God works in a intangible, but almost tangible way to move in hearts and lives. And I can't really explain it, but this moment where people get to, to just go, I believe it. And that's not because of me or preaching or communication, that's the spirit of God. And so wherever you're at, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes for a minute. If you're not used to church culture, I get that's weird. 
But I just wanna give an opportunity for a couple people. And you may be online, you may be in the house this morning and, and this is just the moment and you maybe can't really explain it. I've said this before, cause you still have all your questions. <laughs> all your questions didn't get answered. All of your, why didn't that prayer come true didn't get answered. All the, why did they suffer? That hasn't gotten answered, I, I get it. I didn't get answered for John and Peter either. But there's some things that override even your unanswered question. And for whatever reason, this is the moment where you would just go, I believe. Like to quote John's words. Like something has happened. And in this moment, by believing, I'm obtaining life in the name of Jesus. So I just wanna encourage you right now, you can pray this prayer after me. And I wanna be so clear. There's no prayer that saves your magic mantra. This is just me helping you put words to your own faith and your own trust. But you can just pray this after me. If this is the moment where you just go, I believe with all my questions, I believe it's true. Pray this, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe it happened. You rose from the grave. And right now, I'm asking you to save me and to forgive me. And the promise is that with that simple declaration of faith and trust, because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting, you receive forgiveness and life in his name. I wanna lead you one more time. If this is your moment, pray this after me. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that you rose again from the grave. And right now, I'm placing my faith and trust in you to save me and to forgive me. And if that's you, with nobody looking around, just lift up your hand. I'm not gonna do anything weird, but I just wanna acknowledge what the Spirit of God is doing in this moment, in this place. For those of you who'd say, this is that period of time where I'd say, I believe. I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Come on. If you're online right now, I wanna encourage you to just text Centerpoint to 94,000. We wanna send you a link, Centerpoint to 94,000. And I wanna encourage you to take a next step. Next steps at the end of this month um, in August is a great place to start. I wanna encourage everybody in this room and online to get connected into a community group over these next few weeks to process this content with other people in community, relationship on relationship. Jesus, thank you for what you're doing in this moment. I thank you for saving and rescuing people and doing what John talked about 2000 years later. And the fact that you preserved it and we're still here celebrating it is a miracle. Thank you for what you're doing. We pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. And I want you to really loudly celebrate those who place their faith and their trust in Jesus. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? First, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family. Maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.